0: This is PT Pro Talk, the podcast for physical therapists who want to improve their clinical skills and be more successful. My name is Mariana Parks, physical therapist and your host. In today's episode, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Ron Schenk, an expert in the field, to discuss the integration of MGT, mechanical diagnosis and therapy, into MSK, musculoskeletal care. During our conversation, Dr. Schenk sheds light on the efforts being made to incorporate the McKinsey method into the standard practice of physical therapy and the challenges encountered along the way. We dive into the similarities and differences between MDT and manual therapy, exploring when to utilize manual therapy within the MDT approach and how both methods can help achieve end-range forces in distinct ways. Additionally, we explore the appropriate contexts for each approach and their respective effects. Dr. Sheng also shares his insights on when it might be beneficial to consider other relevant therapeutic approaches. If these topics pique your interest, you are in the right place. Stay tuned for this great discussion! Dr. Ron Schenk, our guest, is a clinical professor and serves as the musculoskeletal track coordinator in the Doctor of Physical Therapy program at Tufts University. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists, an orthopedic clinical specialist, and Mackenzie diplomat. He serves as a clinical mentor for physical therapy residents and fellows in training and as a Chair of the Board of Directors of the McKinsey Institute USA. He leads the McKinsey Institute USA Research Task Force and serves as an Associate Editor for the Journal of Manual and Manipulative Therapy and also as a Manuscript Reviewer for Physical Therapy Journal, Physiotherapy Canada and Musculoskeletal Physiotherapy Practice. I hope you enjoyed the show. PT ProTalk is only possible with the support of the forward-looking and innovative companies like Fitter First, your first choice for the best Canadian-made rehab and fitness products since 1985. Give your clinic admins and therapists the tools they will need to excel. Give them systems built for therapists with their patients in mind. Systems for physical therapists, the only EMR with a dedicated members network. Hi, Ram. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today?
1: I'm good, thank you. How about you?
0: I'm doing wonderful, thank you. Um, So let's start talking a little bit about yourself first, for the ones that don't know you.
1: Okay. So I'm a physical therapist. I uh, teach at Tufts University, where I coordinate the musculoskeletal uh, component of the curriculum. I've um, been trained in manual physical therapy. I'm a fellow. I also more recently received my diploma in MDT. And uh, throughout my career, as I've been in clinical practice and teaching and, and really doing both at the same time, I've tried to um, integrate uh, MTT into standard orthopedic practice or what we consider um, the standard of care of musculoskeletal physical therapy. So I've done that through participation in AOT, which is the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy, as well as the orthopedic section of the APTA. And um, and in teaching you know musculoskeletal on a full-time basis pretty much since 1989. But all during that time I've been also at least half-time in clinical practice. And even now with my position at Tufts, I still do clinical mentoring for our McKenzie Fellowship and residency programs. And, and some of that's done virtually.
0: So that's a lot of experience in the area, and I guess it's a good, it's a different view because you have the, the manual therapy, with the MDT, so that's a very interesting combination that I'm curious to hear you talking more about it.
1: Right, right. So one of the things I've, I've tried to emphasize in my co- along with my colleagues in AOMT, the manual therapy community, is that both manipulation and repeated end range movements are end range forces. So in that respect, they're not different. The big difference, though, being that you know an MDT. Uh, end range may be achieved by the patient and thus provide a means for the patient become empowered to self-treat and manage their condition independent of the clinician. So, and I think that's where Robin McKenzie met his opposition in the physical therapy community was that, you know, many of the outcomes he was achieving could be gained through the patient being in control as opposed to being manipulated. And Mackenzie was a manipulative physiotherapist and was one of the founders of the New Zealand Manipulative Therapy Association. And, you know, did utilize that, those procedures as part of his practice and, and still incorporated manual procedures in the management of patients, according to MDT, but following the exhaustion of patient-generated forces. So I think when we consider end range as being a part of the uh, motion or the range that can produce dramatic changes in the patient's mechanics, especially if it's their preferred direction or their directional preference, then when we see those changes in baselines, we can explain it via various theoretical models you know Mackenzie's original theoretical model being that of the disc, but there's evidence, emerging evidence in uh, the literature of these enraged procedures, manipulation producing a neurophysiological effect that reduces pain and guarding and and uh, gets the patient moving again and functioning again. So. You know, in that respect, we've had some success in uh, presenting at the AAM conference and in, in explaining that, you know, MDT does fall within the realm of orthopedic manual physical therapy, with big, one of the big differences being the emphasis on patient generated forces initially.
0: Yeah. And uh, I wanted to ask you, do you feel like the manual therapists can they see that the same way that you see, or is it really hard for them to... Grasp that idea that the the it's the the same end range, but one's patient generated end range, and the other is just the therapist applying the, the the technique.
1: So you know we all have our biases, and and sometimes it's hard to let go of those. And I think one of the benefits of you know our McKenzie fellows and residents in training potentially being part of the academy is that they, they see different views or schools of thought and maybe different approaches that maybe they won't adopt, but it does open their mind, I think, to uh, the fact that when we have a system, when they, any of these clinicians who are very well schooled in a particular uh, approach and know it at a very high level, tend to have good outcomes with their patients because they have a systematic way of addressing patients. And the algorithm or the way about which they achieve those outcomes may be different. that too, you know, we have the evidence, which is, you know, we're starting to see more and more evidence for MDT being effective. And at these conferences, we're able to, you know, cite some of that literature and. You know, some of it is pretty powerful. And uh, I think then it becomes more accepting. And I think it becomes more accepting, too, when it's presented in a way that isn't confrontational or isn't presented in a way that this is the only way or this is the best way. This may be according to our training or my training or a clinician's training. The way that we've seen favorable outcomes. It's not the only way.
0: Yeah, and I thought that was interesting what you mentioned before about the mechanism that it may end up ver- being very similar. The the when you manipulate, when you do end range, if you're talking about the neurophysiologic effects, right? Is that?
1: Yeah, a- we yeah we're we're not certain, right? We. You know, we can hypothesize, and I think it's very useful and helpful to, you know, hypothesize as to these mechanisms or maybe the pain generator, but we can't be absolutely certain that's what's happening in that individual that we're seeing. We may know in the future, but the other thing that I think has allowed MDT to be accepted more readily is the concept of directional preference. You know, and when we find a preferred direction of movement, that the patient can utilize and it improves their mechanics and how they feel. It's hard to argue with that. So we can argue as to the theoretical models, we can debate the mechanisms, but if someone tells us they move in a certain direction and now they feel better, they move better, their baselines are better. And, you know, we've demonstrated that in some of the breakout sessions, you know, that, that's pretty powerful. And not only that, but you move in the opposite direction or the direction that is opposed to their directional preference and the mechanics are not as good, right? Or they decrease rapidly or they get worse. So, you know, we can find that maybe moving to end range produces a positive neurophysiological effect. Maybe that's it. But why is it that when we move... Into the opposing direction and recheck the baseline on that. Now again, they're worse. So there must be some mechanical as well as neurophysiological explanation for that. And you know, that's for you know the the science scientists and you know those researchers that delve into that aspect of uh, research to find out for us.
0: I just think it's so funny that. There's all this fight about hands-on, hands-off. And then we are here talking about potential similar effects on both that could cause some pain relief. And it's just funny how how that plays out. I'm I'm sure that there is some mechanical, as you said, because you see that, that dynamic, but the other effect is also curious that you're mentioning. And I feel like... People are just, my approach is better, hands-on, hands-off. And then in the end, you have something that's kind of similar on both.
1: You know, and one of the uh, most powerful predictors of a favorable outcome among the patients that we see is the therapeutic alliance. So um, when somebody has skilled hands and they're confident but not arrogant and they're listening to the patient, they're probably, a, they've come a, a significant ways to getting that patient better right from that point on. So, you know, again, there's a lot of factors that play into the patient's outcome. And uh, mechanical is just one of them.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned that we use manual therapy in MDT. So, like, how often do you feel like we need to use to progress forces. Do you feel like that's very often or not really?
1: I would say as often as it's needed. So not to be facetious, but uh, based on the patient. You know, so, you know, I probably would put my hands on maybe sooner than maybe another clinician would. We don't know yet based on the patient profile when's the right time in general. I don't know if we will know, but if we, you know, stick to the the system and exhausting patient-generated first, and offering that patient the opportunity to self-treat as much as possible, then that, you know, that helps our decision making. You know, I would say, and yeah, I, I I couldn't even say what percentage. But probably 70% of the patients I'll put hands on. But when is the question? It might not be. Yeah, I try not to make it the initially.
0: And I feel like probably because you already use more manual therapy, so would be, you would be more likely to use that with a patient than, let's say, like a therapist that just uses MDT and that's not as used to like manual therapy and all of that.
1: Right. But, you know, it is right from the get-go in Part A, the manual procedures are taught. So a different uh, algorithm or decision-making to get to the manual procedures than, than have it based on palpation or joint mobility testing, mm-hmm. so mobility testing, but based on the patient's response. So. Mm-hmm.
0: And talking about manual therapy and MDT, that you said that, both get to end range. So, like, why would you make you decide between just doing more like a menial therapy technique, a manipulation, or something mobilization, something like that, versus going through the MDT approach?
1: Yeah, I would say a, a lot depends on the patient and their. Uh, whether well, they have yellow flags, you know, for psychosocial risk. What's their personality uh, profile like? um you know, how willing are they to accept responsibility for self-management? You know, do they have an internal or external locus of control? You know, so if somebody's, you know, really believes and wants things to be done to them and you do things to them and they uh, play a more passive role in their rehab, that could end up being problematic. But then again, it could be hard to shift that patient into, you know, becoming more independent. So they got to be ready to do that, right? We got to get them to buy into the fact that a movement in a certain direction that they can do could help them. So, you know, depending on their psychosocial um, profile, you know, their personality, you know, how eager are they and how soon do they need to get back to their functional activity? You know, if you're seeing an industrial worker and they need to get back to work that next day, or an athlete who needs to get back on the field, and you know they're highly motivated, they'll probably still do their exercises, but a manual procedure will move them along more quickly. You know, I don't see a problem problem with that. And in fact, they may be what they want. So, yeah,
0: that's, that's what was have yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like, if you feel the positives of doing manual therapy, that you see the results quicker because you get there faster. But then the the negative would be, in my point of view, that the long term, it's maybe not as good as when the patient goes through the education process of self-generating forces and all of that. Would that be?
1: Yeah, I would agree with that, you know, there. You know, if you uh, do a manual procedure too soon on a a patient who isn't willing to be dependent, they may be dependent on you for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then we do believe that if they've learned to self-treat, self-manage, that that may have a long-term effect and that it may reduce recidivism or recurrent episodes. We don't have enough evidence of that yet, though, to say that. We certainly, it makes sense and we believe that, but I think we, we need to consider research that's going to support that to a greater extent. Yeah. We do have evidence in the lumbar clinical practice guidelines in the 2021 guidelines that MDT is an effective system in managing chronic low back pain. And I think that may in part be to what you're talking about. Maybe that in patients who are more chronic, maybe even who have psychosocial issues, if they've learned to self-treat, maybe they're reducing that chance for a recurrent episode.
0: Yeah.
1: Or maybe it's the empowerment.
0: Yeah. I think it's hard because we don't know, we don't control those patients long term, I guess, to follow up and really see because they might be fine, they got a manipulation, they got a mobilization, they feel better, but then you don't know down the line how they are going to progress because we don't track that. So it's hard to say and compare what is more effective because short-term it's fine, but then long-term that it's the, the point.
1: Yeah, we have a lot of modalities or treatments out there, interventions that show short-term effectiveness. We need to investigate more long term effectiveness, especially if we expect to impact healthcare
0: Mm -hmm. costs. Yeah. Yeah. And what are the challenges that you've been facing to try to integrate MDT into the standard PT?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think part of it is due to the fact that um, a lot of university professors have not been exposed to it or they've been exposed to it only on a limited basis, or they may be familiar with maybe repeated movements in the sagittal plane, but not truly the exhaustion of the potential for directional preference by testing other planes and loading strategies. So, you know, many of the university professors have been trained in other systems. I think there also is a feeling an impression that it can't be that simple or straightforward. But you know, I will argue why does it have to be complicated? And I think you could still go with that concept of directional preference and still understand the arthro kinematics and biomechanics, because they may help explain at some point some of the mechanisms uh, behind why things work, why these procedures work. But uh, it doesn't mean we have to abandon them entirely. And again, I think it's even helpful to integrate it into standard education programs following the active movements, the repeated end range movements prior to the passive movements. And you still want those students to learn handling skills and have them perform at a higher level from a psychosocial, or excuse me, a psychomotor sense because that's gonna improve their handling of the patient and confidence that the patients feel with the clinician. So I think it can be integrated. I think part of the opposition is, it's so straightforward. I think is somewhat challenging for people to accept. And uh, I think not, not that many people have been exposed to it in its entirety at the university level. Maybe some have taken an A course. Or, um, they heard about it at school, but they haven't learned it to a higher level.
0: Yeah. And people think that it's too simple, but like the rationale behind and the assessment is not as simple as it seems. And I think that's, yeah. most people don't understand.
1: It's, yeah, there's a lot of clinical decision-making involved in it. And, um uh, I think part of the thought that if it's maybe based on those that percentage, maybe fifty percent who respond to sagittal plane end range movements, because that's the only movement you test, and then it gets better, then it seems like it's simple. But really, when you talk about you know when to change the load, when to change the force and the direction, it's not that simple. But you know, like, it's still very logical. I should say logical instead of mm-hmm. yeah,
0: Yeah. Yeah. There, there is a process behind it that... For sure. Follow you, For sure. And
1: that's <laughs> not to be minimized by any means,
0: no. Yeah. yeah. And I just had an interview with Andrew Lowe, and he was talking about how p is now being introduced in the education system, on the education programs. So how do you feel like about MDT getting there? Do you feel like, I know that you've been fighting a little bit. So do you feel that we are far away from that? Because you said professors are not exposed. So like a, a way to change it would be uh, being able to integrate that on the the educational program. So how do you feel about that?
1: Yeah. So actually I, I do co-teach the pain science course at, at Tufts and you know, we, we're building on the concept of directional preference in the musculoskeletal courses. And then in the pain science course, they can see where, you know, if we find through a mechanical assessment that the person has a directional preference, even if they've had chronic pain and psychosocial issues, that they may respond uh, favorably. That's so awesome. I think Yeah. And, that, and we actually have a, a research study, you know, that is hopefully going to be accepted for publication that supports that. Even patients with high psychosocial scores, you know, demonstrate improvement in those scores if they have a directional preference. So we found that in the lumbar spine. We just had a case series published in the journal of Manual Manipulative Therapy on Cerpogenic Headache. And many of those patients had chronic pain and high yellow flag scores. And responded well because they had a directional preference. So you know, when that patient who has, you know, sometimes overwhelming pain finds out that they can move better and they feel better from a simple, uh, a straightforward movement, then uh, you know they they feel like they're more in control.
0: Yeah, it would be awesome if everybody could pa- pass through the MDT assessment and then part of that chronic pain group it being covered as just having a directional preference and then having like a quick resolution, taking them out of that cycle of chronic pain and don't know what to do and all of that.
1: Right. And then, you know, too, though, there's, and we all know this, there's patients who don't, who have chronic pain, who don't show a directional preference, don't have a directional mm-hmm. preference, you know, so we need strategies to manage those situations as well. But there are, the traffic light guide is very useful, so it's application. I think the patients with chronic pain has, has its place, you know, when the person learns the difference between pain that's increased and pain that's worsened. So when they understand that it's a yellow light, maybe they're, we're emphasizing their function, paying attention to the fact that their symptoms aren't worsening, but having them focus more on their function without the pain, without becoming a red light then they can, again, do a bit more each day. So graded exposure and the Yelp traffic light guide, I think, are very useful. Applications of MDT concepts to um, mm-hmm. chronic pain.
0: Yeah. And I think we have a lot of similarities with the, that system of gradual exposure by the way the MDT is designed itself. So I think that already helps us on... Um managing those patients,
1: and I think that's why you know the evidence is showing m d t is a good system for managing chronic pain in lumbar, mm-hmm. and I suspect the same would be true in the cervical, but we just don't have enough research yet to show, support that
0: yeah, and what do you feel like needs to happen uh, in order to m d t be integrated in the school in general?
1: I think we need to have more professors who are and faculty who are familiar with MDT. We need to continue to present uh, MDT concepts at conferences outside of MDT, outside the McKenzie conferences, but at AONT and APTA conferences and CSM and um, PAIN conferences. Uh, that they'll play a greater role as well. So I, I think it's um, trying to get it out there in terms of uh, what the students are exposed to before they graduate. And yeah. then too, we also can capture audiences and in, in people who are already fellows or maybe orthopedic clinical specialists who are exposed to MDT, through these conference presentations by our residents and fellows, the research continuing to push the research um, that supports the system. Uh, Because when you see it up here in the guidelines and universities pretty much or should be, you know, teaching concepts according to the guidelines, you know, once we get more and more into these practice guidelines that can have a greater Greater effect.
0: Right. Awesome. We were having a discussion exactly about that on our LinkedIn MDT group. That people were debating older clinicians not seeing new grads familiar with this idea of mechanical assessment and repetitive like movements and and all of that. So I feel like that would be a huge step to get people more familiar with it because everybody. I think, associates a lot physical therapy with manual therapy. And it makes a lot of sense have a mechanical assessment, but I feel like a lot of people are just not exposed to it. Um, and then they just somehow in their career um, run into MGT and for some reason end up liking it and pursuing, but I don't feel it's like the way that it's not like common that every clinician has the exposure to
1: it. All right. I think the other thing that's having an, an an impact is that a number of years ago, 10 of the McKenzie faculty decided to sit for the OCS exam. Oh, and yeah. they were prepared. Rob, Robert Metcalf developed a preparation course and study for them to prepare for that. And all 10 of them passed. So now when they're teaching a part A, B, C, D or extremity course, they're presenting it not only as a Diploma McKenzie instructor, but also as an orthopedic clinical specialist. So when someone asks a question that falls outside of MDT, or maybe maybe there's a patient who's being seen, and they say, well, what about stabilization? Or what about um, uh, manipulation? They can, of course, say that, the, the concentration here is teaching a McKenzie, this is a McKenzie course, that's our emphasis. Um, but there are clinical practice guidelines that you can refer to that have varying levels of support for these other interventions. Or so patient doesn't have a directional preference or falls into the other category. So you can refer to the, you know, this literature, you can refer to these documents to maybe address the other category because that's not what we're focusing on in this course.
0: Yeah. That, that's what I was going to ask you also. Where do you see other approaches being relevant?
1: Where the other ones do. Where they may be relevant. Yep. So, you know, I think the, the treatment-based classification system makes sense. You base the treatment on the classification that the person falls into. So, you know, that research you all from the University of Pittsburgh with Dick Earhart who actually taught courses with McKenzie at one point. So in the treatment-based classification system, they have a specific exercise category. So people who respond to extension fall into that specific exercise category and that becomes, you know, the treatment. Somebody has hypomobility, they get manipulation. They have hypermobility, they get stabilization. So, in that treatment-based classification system, if you only test sagittal plane, about fifty percent of the patients will fall. The research shown, about fifty percent of the patients could fall into that specific exercise category. But if you consider all the different ways of trying to determine if they have a directional preference, or may centralize. It may be, I think, in Mordecai's research, eighty-eight percent or more, right, may have a directional preference. If we're talking about the lumbar spine, so. As you increase the numbers that fall into that specific exercise category, the other categories decrease in number. So, the ones that have true joint hypermobility aren't as great, let's say, or hypermobility, or um, the same mechanically unresponsive radiculopathy, right? So, that's where I think the other approaches become relevant. Right? So. I think there may be uh, a place, certainly for other treatments. It's not the end. We know MDT is not the answer for every patient that we see. It's, we recognize it as a great system that has increasing amount of research support, but it's not the only thing out there. And you know, when you think too about, as I was mentioning earlier. The person needing to get back right back to their activity or needing to get right back to work. So, one of my graduates was the head of a sports medicine team for a professional hockey team and NHL team. And we were talking about dry needling and MDT and where he sees MDT fitting in. And, you know, I was asking about dry needling and he said, some of the players request dry needling between periods of the game, so they can get right back out onto the ice and play. so in that situation, that modality is providing immediate short term pain relief, and then when he sees him in the training room afterwards and follows up with exercises and so forth, so, and that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that you know there could be different rationale for, varying rationale for utilizing some of these other interventions or modalities in a certain patient. And I did a podcast with a colleague of mine who's a proponent of dry needling. He's done a lot of research and political action in regards to dry needling. We talked about dry needling and MDT. and he, He's familiar with Mackenzie had taken A and B, I think. And, uh, you know, we talked about a relevant trigger point. An active trigger point, as it's called, or a latent trigger point, meaning, you know, anyone could have a trigger point, but it not be related to their chief complaint. So he, you know, talked about dry needling being most effective in those people that have an active trigger point. Another thing he talked about that I think is very familiar to people who practice MDT is they test retest the baselines. So they have an active range of motion baseline or a functional baseline, and they go back and retest it following that procedure. He said not, when that's done in that manner, you know, it's more supportive, you know, can be more supportive for that patient. So, you know, the big difference though being, you know, we, we may place palpation lower on in our examination sequence or schema toward the end helpatory findings would have a greater emphasis you know, in that school of thought, so um, but I you know, I was particularly impressed with the, the retesting of baselines and following it up with exercise and following it up with movement because their goal is to get the patient moving again too.
0: Yeah, I think as long as you keep your eyes on the baselines so and the patient is improving, doesn't really matter. What technique exactly is getting you there uh, that
1: is, that's what the patient would say that's yeah. what the patient would say for sure, right? So you know we would argue that, <laughs> we would argue that well if we teach you you'll have a tool to manage it in the future, prevent a recurrence um, as opposed to things being done to you yeah. But they just want to get better, right? They just want to move better and feel better. They don't care if it's Maitland or McKenzie or Paris or who it's, you know, based on.
0: Yeah. I think I would always try to choose between, if I had to choose as a technique, try something active. Because I know that the patient is going to have that independence. And I feel like long term will be better. But I had many patients that they came and they said, like, I want you to do something for me. Like, I wanted to just receive it. They're not interested in doing anything. It was like, OK, you want to come back here every couple of weeks? It's fine with me. You are paying. You come back. And some people say, like, yes, yes, I do. So it also depends on on the patient, as you said. My But as a therapist, I would always try to choose something that would give independence because we know that the long-term results are likely to be better than with long-lasting results. So,
1: Yeah, patient preferences are very powerful. So we could try to convince that person that what we think is going to be more effective for them. If we get them to buy in, though, by retesting or yeah. reselling and they see it better, that's powerful. Um, But if they have it in their mind that they want to get a passive modality and we try to talk them out of it, we've created that wall between us and the patient.
0: Yeah. It's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. No. Nowhere good. Uh Uh-uh. And we were talking in another podcast here um, about manual therapy. And like some papers coming out saying that it doesn't have to be like a specific technique. It doesn't have to be as everybody thought that it had to in the past. So you don't have to be as skilled. You just have to give your patients the security. You know how to hold it how to handle it. And you're going to have those effects. So I just feel like people have been just focused so much in manual therapy We could split that attention between the general effects of manual therapy and then the effects of in-range. Would that be ideal in our education? I feel like that would be the dream.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that these regional effects we see from manipulation and manual procedures um, are probably best explained by a neurophysiological effect. So we see thoracic manipulation helping people with cervical pain or shoulder pain. And we see a general lumbo pelvic thrust technique helping people with low back pain if they mean a clinical prediction rule. So I think a lot of that those outcomes may be attributed to more of a uh, neurophysiological effect rather than a mechanical effect. But if we think about it, if we've exhausted cervical let's say someone has cervical pain maybe even radiculopathy, we've exhausted cervical procedures, what do we go to? Thoracic. Right? We do thoracic procedures and they get better sometimes. Right? We see that with the shoulder. I saw a video of a, a McKenzie international instructor and somebody with shoulder pain improving dramatically from a thoracic manual procedure. So you know, that's not an end range cervical procedure. So there's got to be some neurophysiological explanation for that.
0: Even lateral shifts, John was talking about the thoracic impact on lateral shifts. So that's pretty crazy too. We are finding more and more connections between thoracic and lumbar, cervical, it's just that.
1: You know, that thoracic region is,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: that's a powder keg
0: neurologically.
1: And, yeah, you know, we see dramatic effects sometimes with thoracic manipulation.
0: And um, we know that research takes a few years to be implemented into practice. So you mentioned about getting on the guidelines and all of that. So, like, how long do you think, like, would you predict if you, McKenzie keeps showing up on those guidelines and more research is coming? Would take a little while for that to be implemented, do you feel like?
1: A couple of years at least. So um, we actually received a grant from the International Mechanical Diagnosis and Therapy Research Foundation uh, to support a randomized trial comparing the outcomes in people with cervical pain who exhibit directional preference, having them randomly assigned to uh, MDT intervention or treatment according to the cervical clinical practice guidelines. Because MDT is not in the cervical uh-huh. guidelines. So it, we expect that it will take a couple of years to finish that trial. So from generation of an idea until the outcome of the study could could take a while, but <clears throat> um, we're pretty hopeful for that that study, and uh, we'll see how it goes. It'll be a multi-centered trial three clinics where the clinicians are duly trained in both the clinical practice guidelines and MDT. So they they'll be okay with the random assignment. And we don't have evidence that directal preference is effective. We clinically we do. Yeah.
0: Right? That's gonna be interesting. Curious That's to see that. Um So, Ron, before we transition to the final questions, anything else that you want to mention about this, everything that we just talked about, integrating MDT into the standard practice? Any other thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think a a message that we try to convey to our residents and fellows is that it doesn't have to be oppositional, Because clinicians who are showing up at these conferences want pretty much what's best for their patients. So if we go in with the idea that we're gonna share what we know and do it in a you know a confident manner but not in an arrogant manner, not be dismissive of other approaches, speak to the evidence when we have evidence available. Uh, the results can should take care of themselves. It's a slow process, though. And, um, but I think we've gained some in route, inroads in these other organizations, these bigger arenas, because we've approached it that way. And it's not us versus them. But mm-hmm. rather, what can we learn from each other to help the patient?
0: How can we complement each other? each type right strong. Without being
1: dismissive, and yeah. you know, we've all been to continuing ed courses where uh, the presenter may spend not a time talking about their approach, but knocking down other approaches. And that doesn't do anything for anyone. Uh, it certainly doesn't have the patient.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, um, Ron. What is your favorite resource of information? Is there any papers, books, anything that you like in yeah. particular?
1: Well, I go to to PubMed as a research uh, resource, and you uh, know, kind of looking at peer reviewed you know literature whenever it's possible. So, the Journal of Manual Manipulative Therapy is um, the official journal of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual of Physical Therapy, but it's also our journal, and we have representation in McKenzie excuse me Uh mckenzie reviewers and the editorial board people are familiar with the mdt system so we're seeing more and more mdt research in that journal the journal of orthopedics and sports physical therapy is you know another one we should be targeting and, you know that journal has you know a higher a higher impact factor um so i think that that journal publishes case studies as well and I think a lot of what we're seeing work in the work in the clinic we should be sending those out you know to that journal to, to get it read by a wider audience.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And what would be the best advice you give to clinicians that are starting their careers?
1: So I definitely encourage you know, our graduates, places I've taught to in the past to uh, learn the MDT system. I teach them, I recommend that to them for a number of reasons. One is that they can continue their regular clinical practice while attending the courses. Um, in their Most of the courses are offered in their locale. Now we have an online version of the courses that they can take. Because once they learn that concept of directional preference and they get a good handle on who may be responsive to it, who may become independent, then they can go to the other uh, approaches or schools of thought I mean, for that other category. Yeah. We need to yeah. do more to learn about and help us define the other categories as well. Yeah. Which is a project that I know the MII, education committee is working on, you know, helping define other, mm-hmm. giving some direction for clinicians regarding other.
0: Yeah, because sometimes we just get, okay, other, what do I do now? So, yeah.
1: And the other recommendation I make to them is that they uh, find a mentor. So, you know, try to find a position Employment where they have an experienced clinician they can talk to and share ideas with, or a group of clinicians. Um, Try not to get into a situation where uh, the emphasis is on how many patients you see, and you really need time in that initial examination to utilize all that you've learned and paid for in your DPT or physical therapy training. And you don't want to shortchange yourself on that because then it becomes a, a boring job rather than a career and frustrating. And people talk about burnout. And, you know, part of that is comes from not being able to use your skills to the best of your ability because of time. Yeah. So they need yeah. to be selective about where they work.
0: Yeah. I understand
1: yeah. though, we all understand the great debt that these students are leaving school with. And, you know, money's a reality Factor, I'm sure.
0: And I would say that's probably becoming harder because I feel like the load is just increasing, the, the amount of patients that clinicians have to see every day in these clinics, and it's just crazy. Um, and what personal qualities or abilities that you think are important to become a successful physical therapist?
1: Yeah, I think uh, interpersonal skills. Is number one, and then being able to connect with the patient. So regardless of um, what you know, is you know actually having that uh, empathy or you know really caring and having concern for the patient. That's harder to teach. You can always learn skills and always learn um, you know techniques. The other thing is having a kind of a systematic approach to things. So being able to categorize uh, in your mind, at least where to put all this information that's out there because there's a tremendous amount of information out there. So having a organizational being organized in the sense that you're able to put things into categories. So we teach a um, patient client management model, Syriac's first had this years ago, history, active, passive, resistive, neurological palpation, And that schema has been modified now into the patient client management model. But still, if you have that schema or you have that organizational framework, as you gain more experience and exposure and learn more about motor performance and muscle balance testing, you put it in that category. You learn more passive techniques, you put it in that category. You learn more about motivational interviewing and yellow flags you put it in your history category. So having a you know some organization time management is an important characteristic, um, and then uh, being able to strike up a balance. You know not working to the point of exhaustion. You have to find out what's your outlet and what is your go to to get your mind off of things physically. Mentally, emotionally, so that when it's time for work, you work, and when it's not, you don't. You know. But now we have, you know, we got the phones and 24-hour access, so people can get a hold of us at any time. And we're looking at our phones and email probably. I think I've been guilty of that too. So when you get away, you need to get away.
0: I think. Yeah. Technology can be very overwhelming sometimes if you don't know how to do it. It's yeah, it, it sucks up all your time and energy if you're not careful with
1: it. Yeah, you gotta be careful with that. Uh,
0: Ron, thank you so much for taking you're the welcome. time to come well, here and share, share your knowledge, um, and your, your views, um, on that MDT into our. Standard practice, so it was really good to to hear your thoughts on it. Um, and I was just going to ask you if people want to uh, get in touch with you or learn more about you. Is there a way that they can find you?
1: Yeah, uh, my email uh, is, is ronald.shenk, S-C-H-E-N-K, at tufts, T-U-F-T-S, dot edu. at tufts, dot edu.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Rom. I'm very grateful that you're here um, sharing your expertise with us today.
1: Have a good day. Take care.
0: That's all for today's episode of PT Pro Talk. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you can be notified when we release future episodes. You can also join our email list to receive updates and new episodes at ptprotalk.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a rating or review and share with other clinicians you think might benefit from this conversation. We are always working to deliver you a better show and would love to hear your thoughts. If you have a moment, please help us by answering a quick survey and let us know what topics and people you'd like to hear, things you like about the show, and how we can improve. Thank you all of you who have already responded to the survey. It is very helpful. Also on the show notes, you can find the guests' contact information and favorite resources, links for the survey, our social media, YouTube channel, where you can watch the whole episode, and our website, where you can find more information about the podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time...